Welcome to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the radio show and podcast today featuring your physician host, Dr. Tom McGovern, with a special Finding the Halo episode dealing with coronavirus. One of the meanings of corona is halo, so let's find the silver lining in this outbreak. On Dr. Doctor, we and our guests discuss relevant health-related topics from an authentically Catholic perspective. While we're normally heard on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network, this episode will be played on various podcast apps. Today, we're going to have epidemiology, predicting the future with today's facts. Our guest is Dr. Mark Strand, the PhD flavor of doctor, that is. He's a professor in the School of Pharmacy, Department of Public Health at North Dakota State University, a friend and colleague with Dr. Paul Carson, who our listeners are familiar with. Mark teaches and researches uh, on epidemiology of chronic diseases and in crises like with COVID. Uh, He applies those skills to uh, applying um, what he knows to epidemics so that the public can better understand it. Uh, He also lived and worked in China during the SARS epidemic of 2003. We'll talk about that a little. Mark, welcome to Dr. Doctor. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. In, you, how, what is epidemiology and how contagious is it? <clears throat> yeah, well, epidemiology is the study of how diseases work in large populations. So if you think about a doctor taking care of an individual patient, an epidemiologist is thinking about the entire population as their patient. Um, in terms of the current COVID-19 epidemic, um, I think we'll develop the answer to that question as we go along. How contagious is it? <laughs> <laughs> it's really how contagious is epidemiology, you know, for people. Definitely. Don't... I see. Yeah. Well, I think right now people finally understand, you know, what it is and why it's so important. And, you know, obviously it's unfortunate that we're facing this crisis right now, but um, definitely people are appreciating epidemiology and just the whole discipline of public health again, I think. So ology means the study of. So what's the epideme part? Well, deem is, you know, demos, which means the people, yes. like from democracy. And yes. then epi, epi means on or upon. And so the term has a Greek origin, and, ter- and it just refers to the things that come upon the people. And then it's the study of that. And it, it uh, came over time to refer to diseases being upon the people. So you're not only an epidemiologist, you're even an etymologist. You know, the, the <laughs> yeah, oh, I yeah. love that. Yes. Well, you know, science and theology together, you have to be a wordsmith and a lover of words to be, you know, or medicine, you know, Latin and Greek origins. And so, yeah, a little etymology is always helpful. You're one of my people, Mark. I love it. So you (laughs) lived in China during the SARS pandemic of 2002-2003. What did you learn during that time? Um, You know, I think the the world had become a little bit um, lackadaisical in some ways, you know, for seeing the elimination of smallpox in the 70s and, you know, just the power of medicine and, and, and antibiotics and vaccines had really advanced the health of people globally. And the SARS pandemic really caught the world off guard, in particular caught China off guard. Um, I think we definitely uh, at that time were faced with something that was new. It was novel, just like this one. Uh, it was uh, rapidly spreading. Uh, at that time, it was about a 9.6% case fatality rate. So the fear of you know, death was high compared to routine seasonal influenza. And of course, you know, how far it would spread was completely unknown. And so uh, you know, living in the midst of that was, was a very unique experience. And being able to apply my training in epidemiology to really support the uh, employees in the public health department where we worked in China was also very satisfying because they were 
you know, they were government employees, maybe trained in medicine, but they certainly weren't trained in epidemiology. And so being able to leverage that to help them, you know, have a good perspective on what the numbers meant, be able to predict what the curves were indicating, and then also be able to inform the public in, a, in an informed and in a, you know, a non uh, sort of hysterical way was really useful. Was SARS less contagious than COVID? Definitely. Uh, SARS was, uh, you know, some of the numbers, you know, the case fatality rate, or, well, first we'll talk about um, just the, the spread. You know, the SARS only went, you know, at that time spread to about 10,000 people, not right. even, um, not even 10,000. Um, and the number who, who died was about 9.6% of that. And so it, you know, it did go to Toronto and Hong Kong, but, you know, it was largely restricted to several locations in China, one of them being the area that I was living. Um, but I think what we're observing is that uh, COVID-19 is proving to be far more contagious. So, you know, the, the reproductive number or the number of people that would be expected to develop uh, an infection after one index case for COVID seems to be 2.5. And SARS was somewhat less than that. But I think more significantly, it's proven that COVID-19 has a higher rate of transmission among asymptomatic individuals or you know, pre-symptomatic individuals. So there's just, you know, when I think about the outbreak in Wuhan, there were thousands of people who moved from Wuhan to places, places all over the world and essentially seeded the world with the initial cases of COVID-19 because they had, you know, five to up to 10 days of, of pre-symptomatic uh, uh, developing disease. So that was, uh, seems to have been longer and more advanced. With, and that's longer than influenza also, isn't it? Yeah. The asymptomatic yes. period when right. you're contagious. So why didn't SARS cause a problem in the United States like covid well, first off, you know, I think China, even at that time, they went into a very, uh, very strict lockdown mode. You know, I was living there. Uh, individuals were forced to remain in their communities. You could go out on the street to buy vegetables. It, was, it wasn't as severe as Wuhan has been in terms of having to deliver food to your door. But you were restricted. You had to sign in and sign out whenever you left a given, you know, gated area. Wow. Uh, you know, if you, ever, if you went to any public locations, you had to have your temperature checked. Uh, you know, vehicles were stopped and by mandatory disinfection uh, when you went through, you know, certain uh, toll booths or other locations where they could, could capture you. So they were, you know, again, using very, you know, really primitive methods of containing uh, the virus at that time. Um, and, you know, in some ways, maybe we got lucky. You know, at that time we were, you know, China, this time the, the, the COVID-19 had the misfortune of having to really start to take off like four days before Chinese New Year. Yes. And, you know, a lot of people have been really critical of China for not being as candid or open with the disease, but they were trying to help 1.4 billion people get through another four days to be able to celebrate the most, you know, important day of the year for their it's, people. It's their Christmas. <laughs> it is. Yeah. And so I think, you know, that was part of it. And, People were out of their routines because they were starting on vacation mode. So they didn't have people in, uh, you know, workplaces and schools and everything where they could easily be managed. And so um, I think it was maybe more the bad luck we've had with COVID-19 almost more than 
than anything else in, in terms of why SARS did not end up uh, leaking out of China as severely as COVID-19 has. Reproductive number. Okay, if each case is expected to generate 2 to 2.5 more, it sounds like the whole planet eventually becomes infected, unless you can get R less than 1. Is that correct? Um, yeah, I guess mathematically that's true. Until you can get the reproductive number below 1, and that is individuals begin transmitting the disease to no more than a replacement individual, which would be non-growth, right. um, yeah, then that would be the case. However, we're, we're also dependent, you know, this reproductive number is dependent upon a lot of factors. You know, it's not as if the, the virus itself comes with a reproductive number. Now, of course, the nature of the virus contributes to that, but the reproductive number is also a function of so the you know first off would be the attack rate. So of right. those individuals exposed, how many develop disease? That's more a function of the virus. Yes. But then the other variable is the contact rate. So how many people come into contact with that individual? If you think about a city like Wuhan with I don't know six or eight million people, extremely densely populated, you know the the contact rate had you know is extremely high. And then on the other hand, as it moves into other settings, that contact rate's going to be, be lower. Um, and then the final calculation is just the duration of infection. And so, you know, the, 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 one of the issues with COVID-19 is that the incubation period is anywhere from five to 11 days, you know, so that's a pretty significant period of time. And then after that, individuals are also uh, infectious for, for a period of time. So you have a significant period of time during which, which people are infected. So you have the combination of the duration of disease, how many people they contact, and then how virulent, or rather how contagious this yes. pathogen is. And so those are the factors that contribute to it. And obviously, these things are all being worked out in real time with regard to COVID-19. The most common question I get from non-medical people is, why are we making such a big deal about this? when influenza is causing hospitalizations and deaths in over 10 times as many people every year? Yeah, so I'll, I'll answer that from two different perspectives. The first perspective, I'm just going to make a case for why we shouldn't be so comfortable with influenza. Thank you. <laughs> 30 million people a year develop influenza in the U.S., in 2017, we were totally asleep at the switch, and we allowed that in to increase 53%, at adding another 15.6 million cases and an additional 62,400 deaths. And in the meantime, we had people wondering, why should I get a flu shot? Yeah. So, for, so first off, I would like to suggest that comparing it to influenza is not necessarily something you want to be compared against, because influenza <laughs> is a horrific killer. Yes. And it's a it's a killer that we we continue to have low rates of vaccination that contributes to it. We continue to use poor hygiene in the winter months, which contributes to it. And therefore, um, I think, you know, our so essentially that's another epidemiology concept. So we say 30 million cases a year of influenza is our endemic level. If it's not much more than 30 million, we just figure that's a normal year. So we just take you know life as usual. Um, and only if it increases more than 10% above that endemic baseline, then we call it a pandemic. So that's why people are, 
are so that well, comfortable with, with influenza. So that's the first thing. It isn't as if the influenza, routine endemic influenza numbers are something you really want to be compared against. Right. So it's then a, the a low bar. Yeah, yeah, it's a very low bar. Um, but so then the other issue, though, is, is it, you know, comparable to influenza? And the answer to that is not by a long shot. So uh, first off, the reproductive number of, of COVID is 2.5 compared to influenza, which is 1.4. The case fatality rate for influenza is only about 0.1%. And as of now, we're finding the case fatality rate of COVID to be somewhere between 1.4 and 2% of all individuals. Uh, another factor is, you know, the COVID is a totally novel virus. We don't know what could happen. An additional genetic reassortment could result in suddenly it behaves with a case fatality rate of 30% like MERS. And then we have, uh, you know, even a more serious problem. So these are characteristics of COVID-19, you know, the, that, are, that make it a much more serious uh, situation than influenza. I came across a comment that uh, a former acting Surgeon General Boris Lushniak gave this week to some of my fellow dermatologists. And this was a quote from Secretary of Health and Human Services back in 2007 who said, everything we do before a pandemic will seem alarmist. Everything we do after a pandemic will seem inadequate. What do you think about that? Is he onto something? He is, absolutely. Um, I think it's it's a it's a reminder that um, you know this desire to be prepared and to have you know the expectation of these types of epidemics. Um, it's a little bit out of sync with our market-based healthcare system. So, a market-driven healthcare system is looking for revenue generation. Ah, yes. So you're able to generate revenue by the delivery of procedures, you know, either imaging, laboratory. I mean, even now, hospitals are in a real financial bind because they're not able to do the procedures, which are a major source of their revenue. And oh, yeah. In my practice, we're 80 to 85 percent shut down. Yeah. And those are the sort, you know, a hospital doesn't stay open, you know, treating diabetes and, you know, taking blood sugars, you know, <laughs> no. it's procedures, right? And so, right. so our healthcare system is very much driven by a market model that looks to ge generate revenue. That would be one thing with regard to preparedness. I would say our, our model is a little bit out of sync with that notion of investing money ahead of time for nothing to happen. I mean, that's the dilemma of public health. Public health is basically, gener you know, it's using uh, funding for nothing to happen. Success is the absence of an event. <laughs> yes. Well, that's too philosophical and too, like, like uh, abstract for a lot of people to grasp. But I love that. That, you, you nailed it there. Additional, Another, I, I think additional issue, I think an additional issue is I think Americans have a real strong commitment to small government. And, you know, at the end of the day, preparedness requires uh, funded and prepared and well-trained, you know, government agencies. And the U.S. has just got a really strong, like, kind of bias against government. It's like the smaller, the better. The minimalist government, the better. And, and I think we're seeing some of the challenges that that creates. Something in the news a lot the last, I don't know, three to five years is the concept of fake news. Mm. What do you trust regarding coronavirus? 
Well, obviously, I think it's important for every person to identify those types of sources of information, which has the, a good reputation and, and which they trust. Uh, Johns Hopkins University has, has a yes. very good online site that's been really good for tracking numbers. From a more popular level, I'm really impressed with the New York Times, you know, as far as a, a media, like a, a, a newspaper source. They also have done a great job. Um, the European Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is present, uh, prevent, uh, presenting in Excel spreadsheet format numbers for every country of the world in, in really uh, record time. Um, I believe in the World Health Organization as a source of reliable information, and they have a daily press conference that I, I try and listen in on as often as I can. So those would be some of the things that I would think about as, as avenues of reliable news. Now we're to the heart of what I want to talk about and what I think our listeners want to talk about, and that's the curves. What do the current curves tell us about what's most likely to happen in the United States and when? When can we get back to life as usual? I know that you just, you live in these kind of things, don't you? Yeah. Well, obviously it's, it's, the curves do help us try and predict where we might be going. So if we think about China and Korea as two good examples, you know, they went from, so in China, they went into a shutdown mode on February 23rd. They, their curve peaked out on March 6th. So that's about 15 days. And then they went into a three week hold down the fort lag, sort of a declining curve. And then by the, by the 1st of March, uh, they had reduced it, their daily new cases to a very manageable number. So that would be about a, a five-week period, of, but they did it early enough that they were on top of it, that they were able to contain it to this one city, and only a few clusters leaked out of that city to the rest of China. Which is remarkable. Didn't get to Shanghai or Beijing, the two largest cities in the world. Yeah. And yet, we are set to surpass China number of cases within a couple days probably right in our country and, that's, and i i would argue that's because we had our first case in the u.s also on january 23rd if i recall and we had our first cluster on february 22nd we had community spread by march 1st and what was the common public narrative on covid19 at that time not a big it's deal it's no big deal and then only on February or on March, on March fifteenth, uh, did we go into our what the president called fifteen-day kind of uh, isolation mode. That was the fifteenth of March. So That's how many days later was that than like South Korea and China went into their mode? Oh, uh, comparatively, China, China would have been uh, the twenty probably within two weeks after their first case, but they, they went to, into that mode when it was still just maybe dozens of cases, new cases a day. So for us, that would have been equivalent to like February 7th. Absolutely. Okay, so we were five weeks behind. Totally. Okay. And we saw Italy in the same frame, you know, in the same boat. Italy is about two weeks ahead of us. Um, and so I guess, you know, Tom, my my. My kind of sadness about it all is we had the opportunity to respect China, respect Korea, respect their scientists, their healthcare professionals, respect their numbers, respect their experience. And we had an opportunity when we had cases 
transmitted to the U.S., we had the opportunity to begin doing aggressive screening and contact tracing and to really smother cluster outbreaks. And yet we hadn't done more than 12,000 screenings in this whole country until about two weeks ago. China was doing 15,000 screenings a day because they knew their only hope was to find cases, yes. isolate them, trace their contacts, isolate them, and then suffocate the epidemic. And then when you found a pop-up of a cluster here or there, again, you put good old-fashioned shoe leather epidemiology yes. on it. And these were emerging in the U.S. when we were still denying that it was happening. So uh, it's just, uh, I would say, a lack of preparedness, uh, denial, a lack of resources allocated to uh, to our public health departments, um, you know, naivete about the fact that something like this could happen in the U.S. These all contributed to our, I would say, neglect. Do you think we've learned our lesson for the future? We'll re we'll benefit for a while. Can we, you know, be, have a sustained commitment to to population health and and prioritizing the health of our people as numero uno. Uh, it would take a significant kind of philosophical change in our society, I think, to, to see that. But um, it'll, it'll help for a while. So you think those reasons are why the U.S. is set to become number one in COVID cases? Yes. So what does this mean for the duration of our curve? Well, um, Two days ago, my hope was restored because I saw the U.S. and Italy continuing to be on an exponential growth rate, doubling every two or three days with no end in sight. That's the fear that a lot of people have that we might be on track in our society to see 25 or 30 percent of our people exposed, which would mean, you know, 98 million cases, which would mean over a million deaths. So Italy was on this every two or three day doubling uh, until three days ago, they've now experienced a declining numbers of new cases per day. So that have we hit a peak in Italy? Um, one always wants to be careful about getting, making too much about two day trends. But if Italy has hit a peak and we're seeing Germany starting to flatten out, then I feel much more hopeful that although we're only uh, eight days into a really serious American you know, isolation and social distancing and uh, really minimizing contact in public places, uh, I hold out hope that we could see that, you know, also start to hit a peak sometime in the next week or so. And if so, you know, then we would be able to be in that, you know, maybe, maybe four million, you know, three to four million total cases. I mean, that's still a lot of cases, but... Um, at least it's not going to be an issue of surge capacity problems with hospitals and such. So, um, yeah, you know, where is it going? Uh, I think we're still under, you know, it's yet to be determined whether we're headed toward a 20 to 25% attack rate and, or whether we're going to be able to see that limited to being, you know, less than, less than 5% or so, in which case the overall numbers would then be more manageable. So the prospect of celebrating together on Easter is very small. Right. And that's, that's a question most of our listeners have. So if we maintain this social distancing, this shelter in place, 
do you think that it will be like two weeks to peak again from the time that we started this social distancing or do you think it'll be longer from that? That'll depend on regional success. Okay. So right now, you know, we have regions, New York, certainly Washington, San Francisco, Chicago, Louisiana. These are locations that have really, you know, large numbers and therefore the number of infected individuals coupled with the number of contacts they've had is such that it, the cat could be out of the bag. Could we see, you know, large swatches of the country that are somewhat geographically isolated from those centers, then benefiting from being a week or two later and now having restricted travel? Um, could we see them, uh, you know, have a much lower peak? Yes, I hold out that hope. How long do you think we, at minimum, we need to maintain our social distancing? Um, based on based on experience in other countries, you know, well, back to, you know, China, uh, only yesterday, China allowed their people to go beyond shelter-in-place laws. Wuhan, I should say. And so, how long after their peak is this? February 6th and until March 25th. So that's six weeks after their peak. They have been in a shelter-in-place mode. And today I, I'm contacting with a friend of mine who works there, and I haven't heard back yet because I'm checking to see whether he's dancing in the streets because I've heard talk that they've been given, you know, at least responsible, you know, going out in public responsibly. And then they're going to resume transportation in and out of Wuhan in, on April 8th. So that would be um, nine weeks yep. from the peak, transportation resumed. So then if you think about for the U.S., let's say we have, you know, two weeks from now, we're able to, you know, peak out. Um, you know, that's going to be about April 8th. So then you're talking about, um, you know, about six weeks from that, you're talking the end of May. Now we need to maintain shelter in place or social distancing? Well, so, social distancing is going to be part of our new lifestyle for the rest of this year because I think, you know, the, the likelihood of endemic levels of ongoing transmission of COVID-19 through the rest of this year is very high. I think everyone's planning to see transmission until we get a vaccine. Do you think that public conferences will be canceled through most of the year because of that? I am concerned about that. So if you, if you were, you know, king for a day and you <laughs> decide whether or not, you know, conferences go on, say that your predictions are on target. When would you think it would be safe to have conferences again? <clears throat> well, based on time, you know, you'd say September. Okay. But based on prior respiratory transmission epidemics, October, it's going to come back again with a vengeance. So the rest so, is probably... So I, I, th I, think, I think public health officials would be advising that we need to be kind of wondering in October, is another boot going to drop or not? And therefore, right. caution would be in order. So yeah, I think the entirety of 2020 could very much be in, in a very restrictive kind of atmosphere. And, and you know, yeah. Yep. Wow. So I work in an office 
where we see dermatology patients. So we've shut it down except for urgent things. Uh, I'm operating on skin cancer patients, but I'm even pushing some of them off with less severe cancers. How long do we have to do that before we can see patients again? Because if we distance too much too long, there's going to be other health consequences. Right. Yeah. That's where I think the end of May. So the, so the end of May for resumed normal functioning of medical offices. Yes. Okay. That's, that's good to know. Now, I'm, you know, I'm saying that as, you know, armchair in terms of, you know, nobody can predict the future. And it's so dependent on, it's dependent on so many variables in terms of the degree to which we can hold on to the kind of restrictiveness we've had now. I mean, people are going to grow agitated. I yes. mean, even our, even our own president is determined to have the country back in order by Easter. And, you know, there could be some real power struggles in terms of just how much the American people can tolerate this. Oh, I see that. I see that coming also. Uh, because one of the options I've heard about is at some point we try to go back to normal but isolate the people at highest risk. Is that viable? Has that been done before? Um, well, I mean, the closest thing would be back in the days of, I mean, we would know of this from our age of chicken pox parties, right? <laughs> Get well, all we the kids. Throw our kids <laughs> to them, yes. Yeah. And so, yeah, I mean, that biological, natural method of conferring herd immunity is, is, a, is a tried method from history. I think that the, the risk, though, of somehow saying, let's isolate the at-risk, well, then suddenly every nurse, basically, you're going to have to commit how many people to basically live in that nursing home for two months, because the staff can't come and go, you know, because if you're, you're isolating the nursing home patients, then you're also isolating all the staff who care for them. Right. Right. That's you know, so so the prospect of say, let's allow everybody who's a low risk to now mingle and increase our herd immunity, although it's possible that that's going to be what happens at the end anyway, I think to make that a policy would be would be, you know, really hard to, hard to envision uh, just because of all the, the difficulties of, of essentially isolating the at-risk individuals. So we have to come up with the best of a bunch of bad options or uncomfortable options. It's, yeah, it's, uh, you know, living in a contingent world, right? And um, so, but that's, you know, God's given us creativity, innovation, courage, hope. And I believe that's expressed through the general grace of God, public policy, smart scientists, sacrificial and, you know, courageous healthcare professionals, smart epidemiologists who can make predictions, are an expression of the general grace of God to us as, as human fallen and, and fragile human persons. What do you think God wants us to learn during this pandemic? Well, certainly our, our global interdependence, you know, I think, um, I think this type of a pandemic could intensify nationalism by saying, let's just, you know, further isolate from those countries that put us at risk for infectious disease epidemics like this. But I think it's actually, you know, the opposite is it, it indicates the degree to which we need to have greater global interdependence you know, better agencies, you know, more sharing of, of global laboratories with the World Health Organization and uh, more, you know, real-time sharing of resources uh, across borders. You know, I think that's one thing. And 
And I think another, of course, from, you know, this being an audience made up of, uh, you know, followers of the Christian faith through the Catholic Church, I think their finitude of humans and our dependence on God and this human contingency. And I think that's actually seen in two different perspectives. You know, one is obviously the degree to which we are dependent on God, his grace, his kindness, his love. You know, Second John chapter 2 says that we cannot see God. However, when his people love one another, he is present. And never do we love one another more than in a crisis. And it's as if the presence of God has been, has been increased by giving us the opportunity to serve and sacrifice in ways that perhaps maybe our comfortable, independent lives sometimes cause us to neglect. Um, you know, I think another aspect is the degree to which we, and I see this actually as a, as a spiritual activity from my perspective, the, the, the probabilistic nature of the world in which we live. There's variability given to us by God. That's the variability upon which the tools of science work. It's the materials with which we are able to discover medications, design vaccines, apply new scientific principles. So I think in a society where, honestly, I have seen science and even the authority of medicine become uh, under threat from two, from two different circles in our society. And I'm sorry to say one circle is, is, is from a certain brand of, you know, very sincere kind of fundamentalist Christians who have a naivete about God somehow eliminating the need for science or medicine. And I think there's another branch, which is not maybe in a spiritual vein, but it's more in a perspective of distrust of science and an excessive confidence in, in self. And so I'm concerned about the role of science in society in terms of both as a integration into responsible Christian faith, as well as the role of science as, as a response to certain parts of our society who are skeptical of science and the authority that it brings. So those are some things that I think about as being potential lessons that we might learn as a society and as, as humanity uh, in the face of this epidemic. Uh Mark, I love the, the philosopher, theologian, scientist combination. You, you and um, Paul Carson must just have a blast at work. Thank <laughs> you for being with us on Dr. Doctor. Is there any final comment you wanted to make, or was that your, your swan song? You know, you, it's also hard to pass up the fact that this is paralleling the season of Lent. Yes. And the time to prepare for Easter. And, you know, you think about the the incarnation celebrated at Christmas and the crucifixion and resurrection, which we're preparing for during Lent, they remind us of Christ's humanity. They remind us of what it is that Christ chose to share with us in that sarcos, that 
flesh, the flesh of humanity shared with the divine. He then gave up all claims to equality with God as something to be grasped and emptied himself for humanity. This is what happened in the incarnation and reached its pinnacle in the victorious resurrection. And so while we're now feeling intensely the, the frailty of our own flesh in the face of an infectious disease pandemic, we find hope in the ultimate victory of the one who shared our flesh and, and conquered uh, victory over the grave and conquered victory over, uh, claimed victory over the power of sin in our lives, uh, thus giving us hope. So I, I see a bit of a juxtaposition here of, of the, the reality of what the flesh means regarding the, an infectious disease and the significance of the incarnation of the, of the Son of God for us. Please, God, give us more scientists like Mark Strand. <laughs> Thanks to listeners for being with us for another episode of Dr. Doctor, the official podcast of the Catholic Medical Association. Please share the good news of Dr. Doctor with a friend. Invite them to listen on their favorite podcast app or at RedeemerRadio.com forward slash doctor. <clears throat> this is Dr. Tom McGovern signing off until your next dose of Dr. Doctor. Dr. Doctor is the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, whose members are dedicated to upholding the principles of the Catholic faith in the science and practice of medicine. The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-hosts or the Catholic Medical Association. Find our past episodes and keep up with the latest from Dr. Doctor by subscribing in your favorite podcast app and following us on Facebook. Get links to follow and subscribe or submit a question for our doctors by texting the word DOCTOR to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or visit RedeemerRadio.com slash doctor.